I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. This is What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and joining me today to talk about the harmful effects of menthol tobacco on the black community is Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center Director for Training, Development, and Support in the Cessation Services, Sarah Pearson Collins mm-hmm. and Stan Martin, the founder and director of Stan Martin Consulting and the former director of CAI's Tobacco Control Project. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. For thank, you. Us. thank you. Thank yeah. you. Tobacco use, specifically menthol cigarette use, has been ingrained in the black community. Uh, We know that menthol is more addictive than non-menthol cigarettes in some cases. What is the history behind menthol products being sold and pushed in the black community? Stan? Yes, no, thank you for having us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, when we look at historically the appropriation or misappropriation, how you want to frame it in regards to menthol tobacco, Uh, At the root of your question is the African-Americanization of menthol tobacco in the black community. Uh, One of my mentors and colleagues, you know, Dr. Gardner, uh, he liked to frame it as this in terms of in the early 50s, um, you know, less than 10% of African-Americans or those who identify with the black diaspora uh, smoke menthol tobacco. Um, And then fast forward or even in between there, um, today, 85% 85% of African Americans who smoke, smoke menthol tobacco. And the reason being, uh, over that period of time, you know, there was uh, free marketing, or I should say free giveaways, the Lucy cigarettes, you know, the sponsorship of uh, different festivals, concerts, you know. I'm dating myself a little bit when you think about the Cool Jazz Festival mm-hmm. for some of our listeners. Mm-hmm. That was about menthol, you know. So that was about really, really trying to mask a business, an organization that produces a product when used as intended, kills people. And, you know, it was successful. I think for, um, if we're looking historically, you know, it can be traced. So tobacco itself can be traced all the way back to uh, slavery, a crop. It's a, you know, it was a crop. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you think about your ancestors, how they, they grew it, you know, they picked it, they smoked it, you know, because it was access the access to it and so I think it starts you know further back than just I mean of course in the 1950s there you know there's this big promotion for the menthol piece of it but even just tobacco itself um, being traced all the way back you know into the 16 17 1800s absolutely and Sarah you You've got your own family history yes. with tobacco, <laughs> I do. And, and, you, and you you wrote a really powerful op-ed in the Buffalo News. Um, do you mind sharing? Yeah, so I, you know, um, I think that I, I've watched my family uh, smoke 
for years. You know, um, I don't even know how I even got here, you know, being a tobacco advocate, but I'm thinking back as far as as being a child and attending um, family functions and, you know, having a great time, you know, in the kitchen would be coffee and cigarettes. I mean, and they're just smoking one after the other. And um, you watch it, but you don't really pay attention. And some of the younger kids would go and steal cigarettes and they'd mm-hmm. go back, you know, in the back and smoke. And so this was like part of the family dynamics culture. That's how they communicated. That's how they socialized. Um, and it wasn't until later in the, you know, 1990s that you actually started seeing the harm that came from the cigarettes, you know, with, you know, a lot of my um, family members getting sick um, and then dying ultimately from uh, tobacco-related uh, diseases. Now, is that was that what kept you from smoking, just the understanding that this is going to cause this, this, and this? I don't think I even paid attention to the, you know, the fact that it was causing you to become sick. It was just... So, okay, when I was younger, like, the smoke itself was so um, irritating towards me. Like, I Mm -hmm. I have allergies. So I couldn't be in this space with them for long periods of time, you know. You know, we would have, you would sleep at certain houses where I went to the houses that didn't have the smoke because Uh it would really um, affect me physically. Um, So... And that smell. I just stayed away. I don't like the smell of it, and just you know, my eyes would be running and coughing and hacking, and so I just I kind of stayed away from it. Um, And I guess that was a deterrent. My parents didn't smoke either, so it wasn't something that was condoned or even you know an access to it in our household. So um, I mean, I think everybody tries it when they get into college for two seconds <laughs> for yeah, two the, seconds the, the and then you say this is pressure is real yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> you, you know and um and, and Sarah thank you for sharing your, yeah. you know your story and I think one of the things I would you know really also like you know to you know highlight is that um what Sarah was also speaking to was was the normalization mm-hmm. you know of tobacco use in the black community and how it was heavily marketed, mm-hmm. how it was advertised. You know, whether, you know, remember in our households, um, you could be sitting around, the, you know, or in the living room, you might see, you know, Ebony or Life yeah. or Jet Magazine yep. and the amount of advertising, tobacco advertising that was in magazines at that point in time. Or if you're, you know, traveling um, through the community, going to the grocery store or to and from school, you know, the, you know, the enormous amount of tobacco advertising on billboards to and from school or to the grocery store. So, you know, seeing those slogans, you know, alive with pleasure or showing or promoting a lifestyle that people aspire to be and to live and, you know, the tobacco industry capitalizing on that and say, this is a way that we can infiltrate, you know, the black community. This is a way that we can promote, you know, our poison, our product to normalize its use. And that's a, you know, a part of the whole strategy as well. And it's yeah. specifically menthol cigarettes. Because mm-hmm. you can, and I, I remember this, reading reading a jet, reading Ebony, and seeing those cool um Mm-hmm. Uh, those type of menthol cigarettes as opposed to, you know, reading like a Sports Illustrated or something that's that's like Marlboro or, or Camel or something like that. Absolutely. Really, really interesting um, to look back on that. Um, Stan, can you tell us about the work you've done um, both with CAI, which you, you no longer work for, but and also outside of CAI? 
Absolutely. Uh, I've been very fortunate to work with, you know, tremendous individuals such as Sarah, who's here with <laughs> us today, as well as, you know, other organizations locally, uh, Roswell Park Cancer Institute, um, Pastor Nicholas at Buffalo Center of Equity, as well as, you know, others here in this community who are champions, ambassadors to really protecting the uh, life and well-being of others. And on the national level, the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council um, out of California and the Center of um, Black Health and Equity. And I would say I share that because this is an effort that's happening nationally and locally, and we're all saying the same thing, and that is black lives matter. Saving black lives, you know, is important. And, you know, preventing the next generation uh, of youth from becoming replacement smokers is critical, you know, to our history, to our to our country, to our to our future, and we cannot address. Um, uh, we cannot say that you no know, health equity matters if we don't address menthol tobacco, if we don't remove menthol, you know, from the shelves. As as you mentioned earlier, you know, menthol was created specifically, you know, to help the poison, as we some of us like to say, go down smoother. You right, know, easier. You know, you you inhale, you digest it deeper. You know, in your lungs. You know, in your body. So, you know, it helps to mask that harshness. It helps to mask. You know, some of the other you know carcinogens and poisons that come along. You know, with you know smoking tobacco. And let's be real clear: we're talking about um, commercial tobacco, combustible tobacco, not traditional tobacco. Mm-hmm. So, I really want to you know make that you know that that. Um, clear in terms of um, our subject matter today. And, and and the thought was, you know, before all this research and these studies came out that menthol cigarettes were somehow healthier because when you inhaled, it wasn't as harsh. Correct. Right. And then you can see even the advertisement or the marketing practices, you know, you, you know, if you think about the, the advertisements in the, in the 70, the 60s and 70s, you have doctors, you know, and they're saying, you know, this is, it's a cool, it's a win-win, you know, because it's also helps, you know, um, it gives you a, a cool, fresh, you know, uh, perspective when you're smoking it, and it's easier to, it's more palatable. So, you know, if you have a doctor that's advertising, you know, in, in a, a magazine, so you're thinking, of course, it's going to be healthier. Right, right. You know. And and one of the other um I would say um populations, I know where we we've been focusing primarily on the African American population, um, specifically to this point. You know, the tobacco industry, you know, they're snakes, I'm just gonna call it. Okay. <laughs> you know, that you know, a snake is a snake. And in terms of their marketing and advertising, you know, they've also, you know, um targeted the LGBTQIA population, Hispanic. you know, um, you know Hispanic mm-hmm. population, mm-hmm. other, you know, populations, um, you know, marginalized populations, you know, specifically, you know, for, you know, for, for profit. So um, when you look at their history, you know, I think it's very telling, even, even women, you know, um, even like children, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, from, you know, targeting or replacing those that Sarah spoke to that can no longer um smoke i'd be remiss if i didn't uh give a shout out to pastor george yes. you mentioned earlier um great guy doing a lot for the community um as a whole in in buffalo and western new york mm-hmm. um what are what are the tolls on a person into the large community that tobacco use takes I think when you and Sarah please I know you can speak to this eloquently as well you know when when you 
look at tobacco. Uh, let's just say African American population. Mm-hmm. Over 80, 85% of African Americans who smoke smoke menthol tobacco. Okay. Um, when you look at um, on a annually, that means that 45,000 African Americans die each year as a result of menthol tobacco use. Tobacco use affects every part of your body, every organ of your body. So you talk about cancer. When you look at cancer, you look at lung cancer. When you look at um, um, stroke, when you look at diabetes, or when you look at you know other chronic illnesses, uh, respiratory illnesses, etc., it impacts every part of one's body. Inflammation diseases. It affects your eyes, uh, if your teeth. So mm-hmm. you know, some people don't think, oh, well, I didn't have cancer, but they may have issues pertaining to teeth. There's there's uh, tumors that grow, you know, and I'm just thinking about even just from my family's perspective. So, no, they did not get cancer, but then they may have had like rheumatoid arthritis, which is em- uh, inflammation disorders, um, you know, fertility issues. So, there's an, a lot of different things, and people just think, oh, it's just the cancer, but there's a lot of um, health uh, factors or health risks uh, solely based on smoking. Right, right. And, and when you when you look at the totality, even though in terms of, um, let's say, African-Americans, we may start smoking at a, at a later age or smoke less, we die more mm-hmm. as a result of those, you know, exasperated health conditions. So, you know, this this is an issue. You know, this is a this is a, you know, a serious health issue, a public health crisis. And, you know, we're once again, um, we want to raise awareness. We want to, you know, educate, want to help people to make a informed decision. And, you know, at, at the same time, you know, we want to make sure that we holding those accountable, responsible you know, for the death and disease that's totally, you know, preventable. But to play devil's advocate for devil don't need no help. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) To play devil's advocate for 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 a quick minute, um, some folks would say, you know, why not just let people enjoy what they want to enjoy if they're if they're you know consenting adults, um, just let them have their their smoke, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I, I think. One of the things I would I would like to say is that, you know, we're not against, you know, people or I'm not against those who smoke or utilize tobacco. Mm-hmm. We are against, you know, the tobacco industry intentionally targeting and marketing a deadly product. You know, when used as intended, will kill you, will kill people. So when you're talking about um, menthol in particular, there's tremendous disparities, health disparities, in terms of 85% of African Americans that I mentioned earlier who smoke smoke menthol mm-hmm. well less than 30 percent of, of whites or those you no know, non-african americans smoke menthol tobacco so there's a huge disparity there so if we if we can assist those who are trying to quit to quit and to reduce those health disparities to lessen to lessen them then why wouldn't we you know so we have a moral responsibility you know um to really provide a environment where everyone thrives, you know, where our children can live a long life, you know. And go ahead, Sarah. No, I was just thinking, uh, you know, when you asked that question. So, you know, when you poll people who want to quit, seventy percent of people actually want to quit. There's only thirty percent that's actually ready to quit. So, there's a very big, um, you know group or percentage of people who really do want to quit. It's not like, oh, we're just, you know, we just like to do this. People don't, you know, mm-hmm. it's, the cost is, you know, going up every day. Right. You know, um, they're, they're noticing health uh, 
effects from the smoking. You know, it's it affects it not only affects the person who's smoking, but it affects everyone around them. Because if you have children, you know, you've got the second and third hand smoke. You know, you have the caregivers who will be responsible for these people once they get to a place where they can't take care of themselves. So it's not just, you know, my own decision that I want to smoke, but everyone is affected around them, you know, when they make this decision. Right. And, you know, like going back once again, when you, when you look at this impact on tobacco, Sarah mentioned how the vast majority of people who smoke a large proportion do want to quit. And we do know that, for example, we do know um, for those, if menthol, let's say menthol was banned today, all right, Order over over a quarter of a million African Americans um, lives will be saved as a result of a ban on menthol tobacco. Uh, menthol tobacco. So this has huge implications in terms of um, saving lives, um, providing a safer, healthier environment. You know, for you know our children, for the next generation, and um, addressing the health inequities that exist and disparities as a result. You're listening to What's Next. We are talking menthol cigarette smoking and banning menthol cigarette smoking with Sarah Pearson Collins and Stan Martin. What are the next steps then to ban menthol cigarettes locally and nationally? I know recently there was a a menthol funeral in in January uh, in Washington, D.C. Stan, you were supposed to go, but Due to due to the living the in lit- Western New York, due, yeah, <laughs> due to the litany of winter storms we had in January, you were unable to go. But can you can you talk about the event? Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you. The um, the menthol ban funeral in Washington uh, Washington D.C. was actually uh, championed by the African American Tobacco Control Leadership Council, as well as a host of other um, advocates from across the country, where. Um, Individuals, organizations such as myself, from California to Washington to Atlanta and you know, Wisconsin and far beyond, um, really held a um, a um, mental funeral um, in Lafayette Park, I believe Lafayette Park down down in Washington, and they um, really was to really call on the Biden administration to you know really fulfill its promise, and that their promise was that you know they. To the, to the African-American people that they would make a decision, you know, to ban menthol tobacco by the end of this year. But however, you know, that decision has been delayed and that decision has deadly consequences, you know, daily, you know, on the black community. Um, I think one of the reasons why I know for sure that um, the reason that it was delayed was because some of the tobacco provocateurs, you know, lobbyists, what have you, um, said that or, you know, their message was that it would cost um, black votes. It would cost the administration, you know, um, to lose support, you know, for another term. And pretty much those those messages, those key messages was that it would create a illicit market, which a illicit market already exists you mm-hmm. know, for tobacco, as well as uh, it would increase policing in the African-American and the black communities. Those are some key issues and, and that they need to be addressed. However, the ban on menthol really is on, it's not on criminalization. It's, there's nothing um, in the ban about um, someone will be arrested for possession 
of menthol tobacco. Right. <laughs> you know, that's 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 ludicrous, all right? Jedi mind trick, as we say. It places the onus on the manufacturer and, and uh, on the retail sales of tobacco. So, you know, that is, that is um, you know, fear monkeying, you know, the gaslighting, you know, scare tactics that has been utilized to um, not only with the administration, but also with the community, with, with the public community at large. So what we've been trying to do and we're going to continue to do is to really to educate um, um, the community, community residents in regards to what the, not just what the legislation is about, but also the impact of menthol tobacco. Um, and, and in addition to help those who want to quit to quit. So locally, what we've been doing here, fast forward, is to really look at um, meeting with our local councils, and our, our councilmen, our elected officials, uh, our you know our government entities that really can put pen to paper, you know, to move a uh, ban on menthol forward. So, and that's at every level. Uh, so, the local, city, the state, and county. I think some people would argue that the black community can't be any more policed, and so it's 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 disheartening to hear that lobbyists would make the claim that it would more policing would occur in the black community with the you know trying to eliminate menthol cigarettes is there a way to you talk about putting pressure on local electeds now, can that go up the chain? Is that going to go up the chain, local, city, state? To it's the already federal? happening. It's already happening. It's already happening. We um, actually, uh, we and uh, um, several faith leaders uh, from the city of Buffalo, we've actually already been on a conference call with the White House, with the Biden administration. You know, alerting them, but sharing with them what's happening here at the local level. Since the mental funeral, I believe that was on January eighteenth. Um, mm-hmm. In D.C., since that time, um, myself and others, we've met with uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. We've been con- in concert and constant conversation with the um, Buffalo Common Council, you know, who's developed a you know a resolution at this point in time, and they're looking at you know doing um, you know taking some other steps moving forward based upon some of the information that we've you know provided to them, and we believe that there is tremendous support at the city and um, potentially even the county level as well. So we're doing our due diligence, and I just want to really once again emphasize moving forward the importance of reaching out to our community, our grass, uh, our grassroots organizations to partner with them, to come alongside them, to really you know show that this is a part of a movement, a national and local movement, you know, to save black lives. And then I guess from the clinical standpoint um, with Roswell Park, you know, when when this band is takes place, you know, what do we do with all of these people who smoke menthol and want to quit? So being able to develop a, a content that is individualized to meet the needs of folks, <clears throat> excuse me, who um, are smoking menthol and be able to provide services for, you know, helping them to stop smoking you know, providing some type of counseling and support or coaching and support um, and being able to also give them the appropriate nicotine replacement therapies so that they would be effective with quitting. Because we know that um, with the menthol uh, added to the nicotine really uh, makes Mm -hmm. the quit rates uh, 
more difficult. So, right. um, you know, they have a they have a lower um, quit rate, uh, and you know, mm-hmm. and of course, we, we know that there's also barriers and things in place that that prevent them from quitting. But then, just the two those two ingredients together really um, makes it more difficult um, with the quitting efforts. On the ground level, when you speak with someone who is trying to quit, what are those conversations like, and what what's kind of a, a strategy? Yeah. That that you plan out for them. So basically, identifying um, we, we when we we're taking them through an interview, we want to find out how much they're smoking. Um, you know, we want to know what their triggers are. We want to know, you know, um, when and where do you smoke the most? You know, so they give us a list of things. You know, well, I smoke in the car. I'm smoking. You know, when I go on my breaks, and then so then ask them to. Um, so then we're creating. We're creating a, a list of things that um, why they may be smoking. Is it emotionally? Is it a physiological response? Or is it a situation? So we, then we're looking at those situations, we're looking at those emotions, and we're doing a cognitive behavioral approach where we're, you know, addressing those uh, situations and, you know, well, what can you do instead, that sort of thing. We know the physiological um, responses, the nicotine replacement therapy is going to be the most effective thing for that because that's what it addresses. But it does not address the issues like I'm smoking when I, you know, get up in the mornings. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like a problem solving, you know, well, what can you do to start to prepare them for this quit date? so that they will be ready when these situations occur. Because, of course, it's, you know, if you've started smoking, it's, you know, you're addicted, but then it's also a, you know, it's also become a habit. Right. So it's breaking habits. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a behavioral change. So looking at, you know, what we're doing and then breaking the, the chain and replacing it with something that's more healthier. Did you have something to add? No, I was, I was just, just going to say uh, one of the things that uh, we're going to be doing at SMC, Stan Martin Consulting, uh, we're going to be launching a um, pipe or piling, I should say, uh, a program called Free and Proud, um, which is a tobacco sensation program with um, Dr. Karen Beard out of California, who also works with the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council to really look at menthol specifically and look at how um, as Sarah described, like what are the challenges, but also what are the assets or, you know, um, other tools that might be necessary to help someone, you know, who want to quit to mm-hmm. quit. Mm-hmm. So making it a little bit more culturally um, and linguistically, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, you know, appropriate. You know, yeah, for folks. addressing the issues that are commonly found or yeah. within yeah. those per, uh, particular marginalized groups and being able to address them. Um, yeah. So, so it's very important that like, we want to really emphasize. So it's not like, you know, we don't understand or we're insensitive to that this is a addiction. All right? mm-hmm. And so not everyone can quit cold turkey. Some people 24%. need. Oh, wow. You see what I'm saying? 24% can wow. quit yeah. cold turkey. So, so a lot of people need more yeah. resources. So yeah. And we want to be that pathway. We want to create that access, you know, to those services you know, to help those, you know, who are, you know, struggling. You know, we need that extra support. And, and everyone, like, understands that smoking is not good for you. But how does how does the education go go farther? Mm-hmm. Well, can I, can I try another one? Oh, go ahead. Sure, thank mm-hmm. you. Please, please. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would say that, you know, really, and this is why I love the work that we're doing in concert with the um, Buffalo Center Health Equity, you know, Pastor Nicholas. We're really looking at, the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking at you know where you live, where you work, where you play, where you learn. You know, even where you pray. 
you know, how that impact, you know, your health outcomes. So it's not necessarily silo. There's different points of intersect, you know, that really come into play that we have to have a comprehensive approach. We have to look at, you know, um, the burden of tobacco in terms of health, in terms of financially, um, on our community and really work together to address you know, to address those issues. So that's why when I mentioned earlier, um, the political environment. So the social as well as the political environment determines the health have to work in concert with one another in order to be effective. You can't expect, you know, individual change to take place if the environment doesn't change as well. So in my opinion, in my experience, that the both both of them have to work in concert with one another. Yeah. It's a psychosocial behavioral approach. So you're looking at it holistically and you're, you know, when you're treating an individual, you want to make sure that all those components are addressed in order to be able to effectively treat them and get them to to quit. You know, so Mm -hmm. it's not just one thing. Oh, give them a nicotine replacement therapy. Oh, you know, that sort of thing. Or put a patch on them, let them go. No, you know, we know that using a patch and... And being able to do some type of counseling or coaching doubles the chances of quitting. So, you know, being able and then being able to look at all of the barriers, like we mentioned before, to address those during those sessions um, to be able to um, get them to, you know, quit effectively. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a a few more minutes left um, and I've got just two more questions. Um, one is about smoking trends. Are they on the decline? How does, and how does vaping fit into the whole uh, smoking cessation equation? Well, I'll, I'll start this off. I would say that, you know, smoking definitely overall, when you look at the prevalence of smoking rates, are some of the lowest that they've ever been amongst adults mm-hmm. and youth, and in particular here in New York State. However, when you look at some of the strata data, when you look at some of the, when you break that down in terms of who is smoking, we know that educational uh, attainment is important. Um, the, with those with, you know, less than, you know, a high school degree or what have you, or you look at economics, you know, in terms of those who make, who are living at or below the federal poverty level or less than $25,000 a year, you know, smoke at higher rates than the general population. When you look at mental health, you know, tobacco use kills over 480,000 um, people annually. However, when you break that down in terms of who's smoking, uh, almost 40%, I believe, um, the data shows that has some type of mental health, you know, impact or connection. So even though we, my point is this, even though, you know, we've done a tremendous job with the general population in terms of reducing the prevalence of tobacco use, there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, in the African-American community and in some of those other sectors, uh, points of um, intersect that I mentioned. And then, you know, vaping itself, you know, vaping, you know, um, you know, is, is, is harmful as well. Might be less harmful, but still, you know, there's a cost that has to be paid, you know, as a result of that. So, so you, I, I guess I have a few thoughts. And the first thing is that, so we talk about policing earlier and mm-hmm. what's not policed are the, the corner stores. If I go out into the suburbs and go to a corner store, if there's one, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to get a Lucy. Right. So when we think about even smoking and in, in, in the poor neighborhoods, like the smoking hasn't really gone down because I can go to the corner store and get a couple cigarettes. That's going to help 
you know, that's going to get me through and I'm still smoking, you know. Um, so I, I feel like there needs to be more policing, you know, in our in the communities, you know. Um, that's just one thought. Yeah. I mean, vaping, of course, the tobacco yeah. companies have made it so that it's 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 alluring for, for you know, adolescents, you know, all those flavors over 6,000 flavors and counting and, you know, it's, oh, it's not, it doesn't look harmful. It's just some smoking. It tastes like strawberry, right. you know, so it's, it's, it, they, they appeal it to the children. And right. so they smoke it thinking that that's, there's no nicotine in it, you know, until, you know, there's a, a something that happens in the yeah. media and then they're, they can't, they realize they can't stop. Now they need help and they're calling, you know, calling us for assistance, but yeah. You know, it's it's marketed in a way that it seems like it's harmless when here we go again. It's yeah. just a different form. You and, know? and we have to ask ourselves the question. I mean, I, I believe in what it was 2009 that, you know, all flavoring, you know, in terms of um, tobacco products or e-cigarettes, yeah. you know, were removed except for menthol. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? You know, I think we all know that answer. All right. Um, however... Now is the time that we can no longer wait. You know, it's been over 12, 14 years since, you know, this has been an issue. And we can no longer kick the can um, down the street, down the road or whatever. You know, now is the time to say that, you know, black lives matter. You know, saving black lives matter. You know, preventing the initiation um, of the next generation of you from becoming replacement smokers. You know, it's, it's critical. You know, now, now is the time. Stan Martin, what's next for you? Uh, what's next for me? Uh, I'm going con- to continue to work alongside other champions like Sarah and you know um, Pastor Nicholas and our Tobacco Action Group team, my, my friends over at Roswell Park, and nationally um, with the um, African American Tobacco Control Leadership Council and the Center of National Black Health Equity to really um, inform our community um, about you know the impact of menthol tobacco and also to reach out to those who can put pen to paper that can really make this come to fruition. Sarah Pearson Collins, what's next for you? I think I'm tackling it from, I guess, a clinical standpoint. Um, I've actually gone back to school and um, looking to do a, a lot of research in in menthol and how we can effectively approach this with folks who are trying to quit. So, um, uh, yeah, developing content still and, uh, you know, um, making sure that it is evidence-based and, you know, that there, we do have something that's, you know, concrete when we're trying to treat, you know, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would just like, you know, just to put a plug, I mean, if, you know, for our listeners, I mean, um, if you are looking for assistance with quitting, you know, please contact, you know, our New York State Smokers Quit Line, one eight six six ny quits one eight six ny quits or one eight six 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 nine seven eight four eight seven. You know, as Sarah mentioned earlier, uh, if you're eligible, which many people are, they have access to nicotine replacement therapy, they have proactive counseling, you know, um, there are people there who can, you know, assist you along this journey. You don't have to do it alone. And then sometimes folks don't want to call. They might want to just go through text messaging because that's like the thing now. (laughs) So we do have a Learn to Quit New York program. It's a six-week text messaging program. Um, And that number is 716-309-4688. So... And there's a chat feature. So, you know, there's multiple ways now. It's not just all about a phone call necessarily. It's, you know, just being able to, you know, it 
treatment being at the tip of your fingertips. Right, right. And if those who are listening, if you're interested in, you know, working closely with myself in terms of uh, community awareness and education and, you know, um, joining the fight, feel free to contact me at sm at stanmartinconsulting.com. Once again, sm at stanmartinconsulting.com. Or you can reach me at 716-393-2808. You've been listening to What's Next. I want to thank my guests, Sarah Pearson Collins from Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center and Stan Martin of Stan Martin Consulting. We'll be back with more What's Next after this. It's Reading Rainbow's 40th anniversary, and we're celebrating by releasing 40 full episodes of the classic PBS children's series. Look for new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday through February on the Reading Rainbow YouTube channel. Visit readingrainbow.org watch to find family activities for you and your child to do together after watching episodes. Activities are available in both English and Spanish. The episodes are available on YouTube for a limited time, so subscribe so you don't miss any. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is What's Next. We are joined today by Dr. Gary Giovino. He's a SUNY Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University at Buffalo's Department of Community Health and Health Behavior. Thanks very much for being here with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Giovino, your field of research and your, your work is, is wide, but you, you know, you, you're an epidemiologist as it, specifically as it relates to tobacco use. So I'd really like to kind of start there. Many, much interest in the field of tobacco research, some you know, anti-tobacco advocacy. A lot of that begins with a personal story or often a family story. And I know you have one of those as well. So I'm just curious if, if you'd be able to share that to kind of start the conversation. We can go from there. Sure, I'd, I'd be glad to. Um, so I'm the son of a man who quit smoking the day the first Surgeon General's report came out in January 1964, and of a woman who didn't. My mother died of lung cancer. She developed lung cancer in 1974 and actually lived almost five years, which is a very long time for lung cancer. But um, that said, uh, I wouldn't wish on anybody what she went through. Many physicians say that lung cancer is the worst way to die. I don't like primacy claims, especially on things like worst way to die, but it was awful. She suffered in so many ways, and I wouldn't wish on anybody what she went through. Um, my, my dad, when he was explaining to me about the Surgeon General's report, he said, he said, Garrett's the cigarette, the the Surgeon General's Committee just uh, reported their conclusion that it was cigarette smoking that was the cause of lung cancer and heart disease and uh, some pulmonary diseases. Um, and uh, it led him to stop smoking cigarettes that day. He switched to cigars for a couple of weeks and knew he was kidding himself. And then he just got off everything. So that's the first part of the story. Now, uh, that report came out in January of 1964. And uh, later uh, that summer, uh, 
So I was probably in what, sixth, seventh grade. And, and we would go in the summer days to the local grammar school park, uh, uh, playground and we'd play, uh, either baseball or softball. And, uh, there were a bunch of kids my age, but there was an older guy, maybe two, three years older who, um, also would often come to play. And this, uh, guy had a lot of street cred. He just didn't hit home runs. Most of the time he, um, uh, came to bat, he would hit home runs on the roof of the school a lot of the time. And um, so so one day I got my courage up. Remember, this is the summer after my father told me about cigarettes, because this man smoked cool cigarettes. In fact, he had the pack of cools wrapped up in um, the sleeve of his white t-shirt. And I, and I said, hey, and I won't say his name, but I said, um, uh, uh, why do you smoke cigarettes? Don't you know that cigarettes are bad for you? And he said, no, Gare, if you get a cold and you smoke menthol cigarettes, it's actually good for you. And I was kind of getting to the age where, well, maybe my dad didn't know everything or, you know, other people do know things. And so I just sort of filed that one away in the sort of questionable things that maybe I should look into the future. Well, I did. I have looked into it, and it turns out that uh, menthol cigarettes in the 30s and 40s were advertised as good for you if you got a cold. The Federal Trade Commission in 1942 told the cigarette companies to stop doing that. So they were told to stop doing it in 1942. I'm told they actually didn't enforce it until the early 1950s. Regardless, uh, I asked the question in 1964 for at least a decade, this, this advertising promoted uh, misinformation uh, was still in the culture and it influenced this young man so much so that I started smoking daily as a freshman in college and I would dabble with cigarettes and uh, sort of small cigars with wooden tips when we were in high school and if we were at parties and maybe if there was a little alcohol involved and um, I thought I would, it made me look cool. And I was big. My dad's once in a while, of course, you know, uh, I had seen him before 1964 smoke these cigars. We would go to the golden gloves boxing tournament and the men there would smoke cigars, believe it or not. And freshman year when midterms were coming, I was feeling the pressure and I, started purchasing cigarettes. And at first, I, most of my friends who smoke, smoke Marlboro. So I bought a pack of Marlboros. And I, I remember consciously saying, oh my gosh, those are so harsh. Those have to be bad for you. Um, so then I found uh, Salem and Cool. And um, both of those seemed, first of all, both of those went down easier. And 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 then I just had to decide which one did I like the taste better. Well, most of your listeners will know that Salem and Cool only came in mentholated varieties. And um, so uh, the reason they weren't as harsh is that menthol is a topical anesthetic. Menthol uh, adds some cooling phenomena and might mask the harshness of, of the cigarettes. So because they were easier to inhale, there's actually research that shows that people hold menthol cigarettes in their lungs longer, allowing for more nicotine uptake. Um, there's research that shows that it 
menthol facilitates initiation in young people, just like it did with me. Um, and then there's another component to this, which is not only did I smoke cools, but I ended up with cool milds. Now, cool milds is another way of saying, quote unquote, low tar cigarettes. The You might know the story of, of low tar and how they make low tar cigarettes, but just in case, I'll spend a minute or so on that. The cigarette companies figured out a way to um, use lasers to put little rings of holes in the filters of cigarettes so that when the federal government's machine that measured tar, nicotine, and carbon monoxide grabbed the filters, it, they, they, I think they went up three millimeters on the filters. Well, these rings of holes weren't blocked by the government's machine. And it turns out the more rings of holes they put in, the more oxygen diffused with the smoke and the lower tar, nicotine, and carbon monoxide levels came out on the, the government's machine. Um, now, people don't smoke like the machines. People block the vents with their, with their fingers or their lips. Uh, people inhale more deeply. Um, but, but there's an, another thing that low-tar cigarettes do, and that is they allow for deeper and easier inhalation. So basically, I was trying to smoke a less dangerous product, although I only realized that in hindsight. Um, I picked menthol, which seemed better, and I picked low tar, which seemed better, and went on my merry way. Subsequent research has shown that menthol cigarettes are at least just as dangerous as cigarettes that are not characterized with menthol flavors. Uh, and likewise, low-tar cigarettes are just as dangerous as full-flavored cigarettes. To, so to the extent that those products facilitate more people to use, and by the way, fewer people to quit, um, there's uh, more lung cancer. There's actually a different type of lung cancer among low-tar users. And, and some people would say that uh, the menthol cigarettes also influence the brains of smokers in ways that facilitate um, uh, the initiation and progression to regular use among young people. And so that's interesting because you did mention advertising. That was a big part of, you know, the, the story you just told because, you know, not only um, the the physiological effects of menthol, but also the way that it is introduced. And a lot of the times that's in advertising. So research has shown that menthol cigarettes have been the subject of targeted advertising uh, efforts directed at communities of color, specifically African-American communities. And I, I'm, I think like the biggest question is, is why? I mean, wh why, why has that happened? Why was that able to happen and, and kind of create patterns that were, were sort of the health community is, is now is, is, is still dealing with? Right. That's a great question. So first of all, let me say that uh, my colleagues, Mike Cummings, uh, a uh, student intern and I published uh, the very first paper, one of the first papers, if not the first paper in the scientific literature, in the public health literature, showing that um, uh, menthol cigarettes were more likely to be advertised in magazines that targeted African-American people um, uh, compared to non-mentholated cigarettes. About uh, three quarters of the ads in African-American magazines were for mentholated cigarettes, or if the cigarette 
uh, like Benson and Hedges, if it came in what they called regular and menthol in the African-American magazine, they put the mentholated brand in front of the quote unquote regular brand. And they said available in menthol and regular. In the white magazines, um, about 25% of the brands that were advertised were menthol. And in, uh, if, in, in the case of Benson and Hedges, in the magazines that targeted white people, they said available in regular and menthol, and they put the regular cigarette pack in front of the menthol pack. So there's there's clearly targeted marketing through a major channel back then, which is um, um, uh, magazines. Uh, the second thing is, and I actually, when I was a graduate student getting a PhD, I I um, my my PhD project involved teaching physicians at a family medicine center that was on Humboldt Parkway in Buffalo, uh, where most of the patients, most of the clients were African-American, not all, but most. Um, so I taught, uh, there were 22 residents. I taught 11 of them, and we had this random assignment to groups, uh, how to help their patients quit smoking. And I taught, uh, actually, the uh, teacher there taught the other 11 about sleep and sleep disorders. So we developed a quasi-experimental study. Um, as part of the study, we surveyed um, uh, uh, the doctors before and after the intervention, and then we served, surveyed patients before and after seeing doctors. So um, I, after I did the interventions, I went in the waiting room, put on the white coat, uh, lab coat, and had my little my clipboard, and I had about a 12-item questionnaire. And I went up to every person who came in the clinic and uh, I said, oh, excuse me, I'd like to do an interview with cigarette smoking. Would that be OK with you? And most people said, sure. But what what blew, I was I was surprised by two findings. Um, the first was in the data was when I asked people who smoked what brand they smoked. And uh, the vast majority of African-Americans smoke menthol cigarettes and um the vast majority of European Americans, Caucasian Americans in this, you know, in this family medicine center did not smoke mentholated cigarettes. But the second thing that that really surprised me was there were several, probably six or seven out of 250 or so people who were adamant that they uh, they looked at me and said, oh man, it's okay. It's cool. I smoke menthol. Now I felt I was a rigorous um, researcher. And so I wouldn't stop the interview and go, oh, why do you say that? Because that wasn't our protocol. But it turns out subsequently studies have shown that people do believe that menthol cigarettes are less dangerous in part because they smoke easier. My colleague, uh, Lynn Kozlowski, who's also uh Professor Emeritus at the University of Buffalo, he calls it the irrefutable testimony of the senses. In other words, if it feels better, it must be better. Well, in the case of menthol cigarettes and light cigarettes or not. So, so as once I was just doing those interviews, it was like, what the heck's going on? And that's when I was motivated uh, one day to look at the magazines. I was actually in the, in the news, uh, in the newsroom uh, at Roswell, they sold newspapers, magazines, and you know gifts for for uh, patients at Roswell Park. That's where I was studying, 
Um, and that's when I bought magazines that I saw were targeted for African-Americans and magazines that I saw were targeted for whites. And then what, what we did was we expanded the research to a more systematic review of the magazines. But um, so I, I found something going on in magazines, but, but I also, I, I lived on a road that, that drove up the Kensington Expressway to, to Michigan Avenue, which Roswell Park is. And one day I was looking up and I saw this huge alive with pleasure um, billboard from Salem advertising Salem and it was on Bailey Avenue. And then on the way back a night or two later, when I was going home after a day's work, I saw alive as pleasure. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. So I actually, I never published this, but I actually drove around lots of neighborhoods in Western New York. And I actually took my fiance with me at the time. And she's been my wife for 38 years. I didn't lose her over this or anything, but mm -hmm. we actually documented billboards in um, uh, communities that were mostly white, communities that are African-American, and did did see a pattern of more ads for menthol cigarettes per mile of street in um, the African-American communities. So the first thing you have to think of is, is uh, marketing to African-Americans. And by the way, other people of color, including Hispanics. Um, the second thing, uh, by the way, product characteristics are part of their marketing. If you take the bigger view of marketing and any cigarette that is easier to smoke is 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 more attractive. Um, but they also did things where they targeted African-American um, communities. And by communities, I'll mean like, or organizations like the Elvin Ellie Dance Troupe, the ballet uh, uh, group in New York City and cultural phenomena, and they funded them. Um, and uh, they might've, even run ads for menthol cigarettes in booklets that they might have had at their performances. So, so um, of course, now we think of advertising and we think of internet and internet influencers, but there were people in those days that they influenced. They might have supported pastors as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of these community groups or churches were, were woefully underfunded. So any help from um, the uh, any organization was by some very much appreciated. Um, in fact, there are a lot of pastors now who are speaking out against uh, the Food and Drug Administration's um, uh, 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 is considering the policy of of banning menthol menthol flavorings uh, in cigarettes and in uh, other tobacco products and in um, electronic cigarettes and such. So those are. Uh, some characteristics. By the way, if you look at the um, the um, ads in uh, African American uh, magazines, they use the image of slimness as uh, just just like was used in uh, white magazines for women. That is, but um, from some focus groups we did, I wasn't sure that that was as influential. So the, the slimness thing might not have been carrying the day. It was really, um, if you really go back in time, you'll see some ads from the teens and 20s of the 20th century that commented on how sweet tasting uh, certain tobacco products were. And I think they appealed to taste and that mouthfeel.
So that's another possible reason. So yeah, advertising and marketing, you know, what products were they distributing and giving out free samples to in various community settings as well. The, it all comes into play. Dr. Gary Giovino, SUNY Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University at Buffalo's Department of Community Health and Health Behavior. Thank you so much for joining us on What's Next. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And this is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1, Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.